Happy New Year, everyone. It is uh, New Year's Eve on the cusp of a new year beginning. It's a time that we always tend to look back and uh, we forget to look forward sometimes, but we, we tend to look back and, and remember. And uh, we're going to look at a passage today in Philippians chapter 3 uh, where Paul actually uh, kind of tells us not to, to not spend so much time looking back. So we're going to just jump into this, Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. We're going to do just a couple of verses there, verses 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin to look at your word here, Lord God, open our hearts and open our minds to the truth that you would give us today. Lord, let us hear from you. Lord, apply it directly to our lives. And we just thank you, Father, that you've given us your word that we can hold on to, that we can read, that we can study and uh, memorize and meditate on and that you speak to us through it. Lord, speak to us today in Christ's name. Amen. Paul's writing here to the church at Philippi while he's imprisoned in Rome and it's probably about A.D. 62. It's his, really his first imprisonment in Rome. It's uh, he's, he, he had planted this church in Philippi during his second missionary journey, actually his first missionary journey, about 12 years earlier. So the church in Philippi is actually considered to be the first Christian church in Europe. It's up there in Greece, it's the first, first Christian church in Europe, planted by Paul and Silas and Timothy. But like all the churches of really all ages, like any organization of human beings, a little trouble, a little conflict, a, a little bit of differences of opinion had developed over this time, and it had begun to have a, a negative effect on the church, and particularly a negative effect on the unity in the church. And so Paul's writing to this church. And I remember this is a church that had been in existence by this time for 10 or 12 years. It had been founded by Paul with Silas and Timothy as teachers. Well, that'd be some pretty good teachers there to, to build that foundation. Paul had already visited the church at least two times between its founding and 62 AD. There were some pretty uh, mature believers there by this point. There'd been people there that, that had been committed Christians under the best of the teachers probably 12 years. They had identified church leaders. 
They had organized themselves as a church. They had appointed deacons. And from what it appears in scriptures, this church would be one that we would call just a blowing and going church today. They, they'd had enough time as a church, in other words, uh, for some of them within the church to begin to think pretty highly of themselves, of their, their spirituality, of their, their knowledge of Christ, of their Christian maturity, and, and even some to begin to think that they had arrived. They were the mature Christians. They had reached Christian perfection. You know, these are the ones that, you know, after 12 years of Sunday school said, I don't need Sunday school anymore. They were the mature ones, and they were ready to tell all the others about their immaturity. But Paul, he wasn't going to have any of that. See, earlier in this same chapter, he lays out his qualifications for being considered righteous. You know, as these had considered themselves mature, Paul writes, and he looks back first at his, his Jewish credentials. He says, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, blameless. I mean, Paul presents that so that no Jew in that congregation, no Christian who had been a Jew in that congregation could think that they were somehow more mature, more better, more closer to perfection than Paul. He also looks at his life as a Christian, beginning in verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now listen, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So he does all of that as if to say, hey, if anybody here should be able to claim that I have arrived, it would be me, Paul. I was the, 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 the Jew of the Jews, the Hebrew of the Hebrews. You cannot count your Christian suffering against mine. Think of what all Paul has been through, and he's writing this from prison. And yet Paul says, but I know I haven't arrived yet. My goal, he says here, is to know him, to share in his life, 
and to be like Jesus. Paul doesn't come down very harshly on them, though. In fact, he assures them that he isn't there yet. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. He tells them he has not arrived there yet, that he has not reached that point of Christian perfection, that he presses on in order to, to lay hold of that which, for which Christ laid hold of him. It's an interesting turn of phrase there, laid hold of. You know, some of the translations will say they apprehend or grasp. Whatever specific word your translation has, just, just think about the idea of it there. Whether it's lay hold of or grasp or apprehend, all of those words apply effort. Not necessarily a violent grabbing, but at least an aggressiveness, an assertiveness to lay hold of. You know, as a child, it's a, it's a little different when you hear your mother say, you know, I'm going to take you by the hand and say, I'm going to lay hold of you. There, there's an aggressiveness to it there. Notice he compares his effort to lay hold to his experience of being laid hold of by Christ. You remember Paul on the Damascus Road? When he was laid hold of by Christ, it knocked him off his horse. There's an, an aggressiveness with it. The grasp is firm. It was an assertive Christ who got a hold of Paul and then never let him go. And he promises us that same thing. John 10, 28 says of Jesus saying, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He lays hold of us. And here Paul's saying that he presses on in order to assertively grasp that for which Christ laid hold of him. There's effort. There's an aggressiveness there as he presses on to lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold, Christ laid hold of him. Have you, you ever wondered what you were saved for? You, you ever wondered what you were saved for? You, you know, we often talk about what we're saved from. You know, the three tenses of salvation. I, I was saved from the penalty of sin. I am being saved from the power of sin. And at glorification, I will be saved from the very presence of sin. Yeah, that's what we're all saved from. But what were you saved for? What did Christ lay a hold of you for? I can think of many answers. To fulfill the Great Commission, that answer comes to a lot of people who have that, that missionary mindset. Uh, they, they, they're attuned to God's missionary purpose. Uh, 
to be the hands of feet of Jesus to those in need. That for those whose heart is attuned to the compassion of God, that's what they might answer. To preach, to teach, to do any number of things that God calls us to do. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. I think Paul probably had a pretty good handle on doing good works, don't you? So, honestly, there's also a lot of non-Christians who do good works. So does Christ just save us, lay his hand on, lay hold of us to do those good works? I think Paul actually has it right in Romans 8 when he tells us that God calls us to salvation to become conformed to the image of his son. As we conform ourselves to the, to the image of Christ, we find ourselves doing the good works. But the reason that Christ saves us, what we are saved for is to become more like Christ. You see, that's really for what you're saved. You are saved so that you will become like Jesus. You will become Christ-like. That is the final goal and the final prize. Look at verse 13. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul here is using language from an athletic competition, really from a, a foot race. You know, when training for track meets, back when I was a kid, the Coaches were always telling us, don't look back. Don't look at who's behind you. Keep your eyes on the, on the end. Keep, keep looking forward. Keep moving forward and don't look back. And Paul here is saying the same thing there. He says, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward. He, he's picturing a race where the prize is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That upward call is the call toward Christ Jesus. It's not just the prize of entering heaven, although it is that. It is the prize of Christ-likeness. For in our glorification, in that final step of salvation, when we see Jesus just as he is, we will receive the prize. We will be like him. 1 John 3 tells us, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. The prize is Christ-likeness. But here's the thing about this race to Christ-likeness that we're on. We don't know where we are in the race. We know what the prize is, 
But we don't know where the finish line is. For some, that race is relatively short. For some, that race is decades and decades and decades of growing more and more like Christ. So we must lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Or as Paul wrote to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And yes, that's that same phrase, that same taking hold. Eternal life, our salvation, is a gift from God. A gift that we must take hold of. But we're not to be passive from that point on. Paul says he presses on toward the, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's an aggressiveness to it. There's energy to it. We're not just to passively accept this gift and not use it. Okay, now that we've taken this passage apart into several little pieces, let's put it back together again. As we stand here, or sit here, on New Year's Eve, the threshold of a new year. We know that 2018 is going to bring challenges. It's going to bring blessings. And it's natural for us to look back at the past year. Okay. Fair enough, but tomorrow is a new day. It's a new month. It's a new year. In this passage, Paul challenges us to keep looking ahead, to keep looking up, to neither rest upon our past successes or be held back by our past challenges, but to keep looking up, to keep reaching for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I think that should be our New Year's resolution as a church. Let us resolve to be more like Christ, each one of us. Let us resolve to be more like Christ as a church. Let us each resolve to live the great commandment, 
to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Let us, as a church, resolve to live the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations, of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that He commands us. And let us do that, remembering His great promise that He is with us always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You, Lord, for Your Word. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us, Lord, to continually reach, to grasp, to hold on to, to grow in Christ-likeness so that each day, Lord, our goal is to be more like you than we were the day before. Let us love you fully with heart, mind, and soul. Let us recognize and love those around us. And Lord, lead this church. Bless this church. And let us, Lord, be a missionary church reaching all people. And Lord, let us be a ministering church, touching one another, reaching our community, being like Jesus. Lord God, I... Just think of so many times as Jesus reached out to others with grace, with forgiveness, with loving truth. Lord, help us to be like him. In Christ's name, amen. You know, we do come at this time always to a time of invitation. As we stand to sing this hymn of invitation, perhaps God has called you to...